Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, Corey, how are you doing today? I am doing fabulous today. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. glad to hear you didn't get thrown in jail in Mexico. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm back on uh, on home soil, and uh, most of the snow melted while we were gone, and I understand the elk are dropping antlers right now, so life is good. Oh, man. How did we get you away from the mountains when elk are dropping antlers? I tell you what, I sat on a beach in Mexico with a pina colada in my hand, daydreaming about picking up brown elk antlers. Uh, well, since we got you off the mountain, I think we're really blessed to have another guest with us today. Uh, we've been working on this one for a while. Gabe Jenkins from Kentucky. Uh, is it is it wild, Fish and Wildlife or is it Wildlife or what yes. is it, Gabe? So we are the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. Resources from yes. the state of Kentucky because Corey and I have been... I guess, is it fair to say, Corey, we've dreamed about hunting elk in Kentucky for a while? Man, I, I apply every year. So, yeah, I dream yeah. about it. So, we're uh, we're blessed to have Gabe with us. Gabe, you were a, a field biologist for quite a while before you became the director of all these other things that are now part of your, your job. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked in elk for... Uh, what, 14 and a half years as both a field biologist and also the elk coordinator. So uh, done a variety of things from on the ground to management to supervision. And you know, elk is my passion for sure. Well, you're you're on the right podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, man. I'm stoked to be here. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so uh, Corey and I, we're, we lucked out. And when we got in touch with you, you sent us your, your elk management plan. For, you guys run on a 15-year plan. We'll touch on a lot of that. But before we get into that, can you give us the, the background of how in the heck you guys pulled it off in a state with as much private land, as much agriculture as you have, that you now have, I don't know, 10, 12, 14,000 elk. You probably don't want to tell how many elk you really have. You might have someone say you got too many. <laughs> right. Too many or not enough. We've all got our opinions, right? So, <laughs> but, but it is a, a great question. And, you know, why elk? Why Kentucky? Why, why did we even go down this route? And, and really for us, it was kind of the next step in, in a very long tradition of species restoration. Um, when you look at Kentucky, our our story is very similar to all of the other eastern states is that, you know, we we lost a lot of our major game animals, whether that was turkey or waterfowl, or not waterfowl, but turkey or deer or otter uh, and elk. And so, you know, for us in the agency, we were we were finishing up a lot of those major restoration projects. Um, you know, white-tailed deer, we had as, as few as a thousand in the state of Kentucky. Uh, where really? now we have well over a million, and they were just in one small little spot in western Kentucky. And so we we worked for literally a half a century to restore deer and brought in deer and, and let populations grow uh, to where we were still moving and restocking deer in the 90s. 
um, you have a very similar conversation. You know, it's crazy to think 90s and we were still moving deer, but the last movement yeah. of deer where we captured and released them was 1999. Um, you know, and, and we'll get into some dates in, in elk, but that kind of has a tie to it. So, you know, we're <laughs> moving, releasing deer. Uh, same thing with turkeys, our, our turkey project where we were turning turkeys loose all across the state wrapped up otters were finished and so you know we were looking at well kind of what's next and we had interest from our our oversight commission board uh to to look at elk i know there were elk in the smokies um there were elk in a captive facility in western kentucky i know michigan had some wisconsin had a few and so that that conversation started and it started and it really moved very quickly um, you know, we had a four, uh, two board members specifically, uh, Tom Baker, and then another board member, uh, Doug Hensley, who had this interest and really the push. And we had the expertise as an agency from species restoration, and it kind of took off. Uh, we did a feasibility study where we looked at the entire state and said, you know, what do elk need? What is all the other, you know, other factors that you have to consider when you look at elk as far as is um, agriculture and road networks and habitat size and all the things we think about with elk and then where would they fit and it really came back to there were three kind of major places in the state that it could work habitat wise but eastern kentucky really jumped out to us it was the best best opportunity and so right after that feasibility study was done, we went right out to the public, had a few meetings to see how the public supported it, overwhelming support. Uh, and that would have been in 97, in the spring of 97. And fast forward a few months, and we had a load of elk, and we were coming across the country with elk. And <laughs> just that bang, bang, bang. And so that was 97. And going back, you know, back to our deer conversation, we were still moving deer in 97 in the same place we were turning elk loose. So the, the, the landowners, the, the hunters and people that live there already were familiar with this process of capturing, elk, capturing game animals and turning them loose. So it to them was like, well, that kind of makes sense. And so off we, off we went into this beautiful project that we have now. Wow. That, that's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, you think the pace at which a lot of things move in, in agencies? Uh, you guys set a land speed record. It was. It, it really was. <laughs> and, you know, but it's also kind of by design. And when you have the stars aligned and you have the support and the willingness, you need to try to go. And, you know, we were being pushed by board members who have a shelf life and we had the support and realized there could be a shelf life to that as well. So, um, you know, I've seen that firsthand in experiences with other states, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, that we've been involved with where same concept, just at a smaller scale, is they all of a sudden had the support, we got to go now, and and off they went. Well, wow. and I think it's, How many it's elk so did? interesting. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, you know, I, I, I hunted uh, elk in Alaska this last fall, and they did a translocation several years ago, and I think they did like 25 mm-hmm. or 16, 50 elk, yeah. you know, little numbers, and it takes forever for that population to, to catch and grow. What was the total number that were brought into Kentucky? 1,541. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're going to go, you might as well go big, right? Go big or go home. We, we did that. <laughs> you know, and there were a couple reasons, right? Like, we know go big, and it makes sense. But also, when you looked at other 
Eastern Elk um, restoration projects, they were small and they were disjunct herds coming from one local population. And when you look at elk and you look at the the history of elk and, and the numbers across the country, they're fairly genetically bottlenecked back to that that uh, Yellowstone herd. And so yeah. you already have some concerns on genetic diversity. And, and, and so if you're only going to take a few and all those few have very similar lineages, you, you might be setting yourself up for failure, you know, a half a century or a century down the road. So you've got that. And then some disease concerns, we can get into that a little more specific if you'd like, but disease concerns. And when you've got low numbers, you just might not have the viability for long-term success. And so that was really the push on our end was we really, if we're going to go big, if we want this to be successful, we need to set ourselves up for the, for a very diverse, genetically diverse population to where this population will thrive through perpetuity, knowing that there's very high likelihood there will not be connectivity with any other, any source population for a long, long time. Hmm. That makes sense. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> didn't didn't they come from a multitude of different states? So they did. Um, came from six different states: um, North Dakota, Kansas, Utah, Oregon, New Mexico. Is that six? <laughs> uh, close enough. Yeah, no, I, I can't, what kind of a biologist am I? I can't even count yeah. six. Well, so, we, if we forgot yeah. one of them, our apologies. And, yeah, and thanks, yeah. thanks to all of them who contributed. So, mm-hmm. How hard is it to transport elk, though, from Oregon or Utah or somewhere? I mean, it seems like you throw them in a horse trailer and they got to get out and stretch and water and take care of their business once in a while. Uh, it's it's hammered down. You know, I was not a part of that. I, I would have loved to have been here during that time, but and talked to to you know some of our senior biologists that are still here. And, and while I was with the agency, it was literally load them on a on a truck, and for the most part, we use semis. You know, the typical cattle trailer hauler, and they don't stop. You go twenty four seven as fast as you can get across the country. Because really, time is of the essence of that point. You, like you said, you can't just stop and let them out and stretch them like you do your horse, right? So <laughs> you've got to you've got to move fast, and um, they do real well. I mean, I, there's all kinds of stories floating around, whether they're true or not, about you know storms and you know wrecking vehicles coming across the country, and you know we were moving elk in in the winter, so you're coming across the the plains and you hit a snowstorm, and, you know sub zero temperatures. Those are all all had impacts um, on on their their timing. So they did have a law enforcement escort from our agency just to try to help them move through through along. But you know they're coming across Kansas and Kansas City and St. Louis and all the yeah. the major cities for a lot of them to, to get to Kentucky. <laughs> so pretty nuts. Uh, that's that that's just so remarkable. And I mean, fifth, I want how many can you fit in a trailer? Ten, fifteen? <laughs> oh no, on a semi you can pack them in there pretty tight. Thirty or forty oh. easily. Oh, okay. Yeah, but and, even at thirty, that's fifty trailer loads. Yeah, and and we also tried to pick young young elk. You know, we had some mature cows, mm. but we did not bring in uh, bulls of any maturity. And you know, most of them were just spikes. Or, or, or cat bull calves, so that that helped. Um, uh, an adult bull is just a pain in the butt. I mean, that, that's about all he's good for is a pain in the butt or to be to be shot by a hunter, right? That's that's that's, that's a glory of a bull elk. So 
so you mean you don't want to be the guy uh collaring or netting that 700 pound beast with six big tines on each antler no no been there done that i I can experience that check that off the list and it's not something that i would say is you know i want to go do again so but i I do have to say if you're if you're gonna get spike elk and bring them into kentucky selecting arizona new mexico and utah is probably a pretty good place to get them Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, we knew they were packing the genetics they needed. Yeah. And then yeah. you put them on our, our food resources and then our, you know, our, our very easy winners. Uh, it, it was a, a recipe for success for sure. Yeah. Well, maybe there's some uh, <clears throat> Merriam's elk ge- genetics in there because you lost all your Eastern elk genetics, right? In right, the 1800s right. or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-Civil War there. The last known elk was, was gone this point in kentucky oh. so you know you talk about the the Merriams. yeah i think we see that so one thing that i see in a lot of our elk and just antler characteristics is very dark antlered and also a lot of crowning and which is what you see in the in the that subspecies and so i mean for a big mature eight or nine year old bull here you're going to see some crowning you're going to see i mean you don't see them very typical uh, at that age class, they're going to be a more of a non-typical with crowns here and there and just some of that characteristic. So is it a dominant trait? Probably not. But do we have some of that genetic in our herd? Probably so. Mm. We're, we're starting some some myths, some, yeah. and, <clears throat> some and rumors, some mysteries you know, here. You guys talked about, on Randy, on your unveil on, on the size of our elk. So that's, I mean, 100% legit. I mean, yeah. a bull elk for us, a big prime adult bull, he can weigh 900 pounds easily pre-rut. I mean, the, I mean, they just look like toads, you know, so yeah. you know, whatever, whatever you want to call them, but just some monster critters uh, come, you know, late August. Well, that one you shot in Alaska, Corey, looking at the video of that, that's like the biggest. That, that thing looked like, you ever seen a wood tick swelled up on a summer bear? You know, they, they're, they're all gray. They, they've got so much, they've ingested so much blood. They just got these little feeler fingers out there. That's what your bull elk in Alaska look like. So those Kentucky ones sound like another kind of wood tick on a summer bear. Uh, well, I, I just, I'm curious about what kind of terrain you have to pack them out of because Alaska wasn't much fun for packing an elk that big, but I'm guessing Kentucky's probably a little bit more uh favorable for that well i I guess your definition of of uh, terrain type so long distance no uh steepness and severity of the hike out absolutely it can be so um if you've never been to east kentucky uh the place that i would compare it the most to would be like the the northern panhandle of idaho like up around coeur d'alene you know, when you think about that, you know, those mountains are not real tall, but they're stacked in tight. They're extremely dense and uh, they're very steep. And, and that's kind of how eastern Kentucky is uh, on a natural landscape. So, I mean, you're going to deal with some very steep terrain that's really hard to navigate. Uh, they're just not eight, ten thousand feet high. Well, just the, uh, the you know, it says here in the, in the plan, human land use within the elk restoration zone has resulted in a landscape of approximately 80% deciduous forest, which I think when people think about Kentucky, they aren't thinking 80% forest, 10% uh, active and reclaimed surface mine, 9% agriculture, that's uh, and 1% urban 
matrix, you know, that's, you don't think of that when you think of Kentucky, but then, you know, you, like you said, you go back into the way back in the pioneer days and there were a lot of elk back there. The elk were the number one deer species across North America back in that time. And a lot of places, a lot of different sites in Kentucky are named with elk names. And yep. it's just, it's so awesome to see things come full circle, true conservation taking place. Yeah, when, when you look at our landscape and how the state's set up and, and knowing like you referred to the place names, Corey, that we know we had elk all across the state where they were probably the, the largest populations were in the central and western portion because that's where our grasslands are, our open area, the kind of the horse country, if you will, uh, of the state. And then as you move west into our ag. But in eastern Kentucky, that's where the elk are. It's predominantly, predominantly a closed canopy forest system. You know, when, when the settlers were moving across the country, they came through Cumberland Gap, which is a very prominent gap. When you read about Boone or Dr. Thomas Walker, they're going to talk about that. You know, our elk are right there in Cumberland Gap, right around that area, and, you know, kind of the north and the, the west of there. Um, into just They weren't there in, in high numbers. They were probably there around the, the creeks and the, the riparian areas, but in the mountains, uh, probably not a lot. You know, they were very, I'm sure they keyed in on the, the chestnut uh, when the chestnut was here, and they probably migrated in and ate that when they were dropping in the fall. But um, what we would guess, there's probably not a lot of great elk habitat outside of, of mast production in the fall in, in most of eastern Kentucky. So what's their habitat preference now in that spot? Oh, so perfect segue so that would have been pre you know pre the civil war you know native native elk native eastern eastern elk um, now um, because of the mining industry we have early successional grassland habitat so uh, this is where most of our coal comes from in the state um, and most of that is a pretty high layer of coal so they're 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 getting that they're extracting that mineral through surface reclamation or surface mining Mm-hmm. So they're they're removing the tops of the of the hills, the mountains, accessing that coal, and then reclaiming it. And, and then in that reclamation process, uh, it comes back as a as a grassland and early successional, which is phenomenal for elk. And I mean, I mean, the amount of of mining in those in those elk zone, or and then the elk zone is is was tremendous. And so we were able to put them uh, back on. A landscape that was conducive for elk that they probably weren't at near that density, but because of what man has done and man created, they're able to go there. Hmm. So uh, now, as that successional process continues, what? Uh, how do you keep that as more of a grassland compared hmm. to the encroachment of a deciduous forest? Great question, and that is, the, you know, for us, something we really have to to key in on and think about. And you know, we also have competing interests uh, as an agency. You know, I'm I'm an elk nut. I'm going to push elk and, and think about that. But we also have vocal folks who want to see this go back to what it was as a forested landscape. And, and so we have we have the competing interest, and then also, you know, our elk zones four point one million acres, so you know, twice the size of Yellowstone. How do we how do we manage that to keep that early successional? Um, it doesn't it doesn't um, move as quick from grasslands to to hardwoods because of that mining industry, so it's a lot slower process. But it still does happen, and so we're really 
struggling with that on how we do that as an agency, how we work with our partners uh, to maintain those grasslands. Um, you know, there are other other animals besides elk that we that we care about, and a lot of those are threatened and endangered species, like different songbirds that really need that that habitat that they've kind of made that their home too. So, you know, we're trying to piggyback with that and say, you know, for some of these uh, ground nesting birds, this habitat is important as well. Um, so it's you know, a variety of different species that we're trying to use to try to help uh, manage that and set the succession back. Is is a controlled burn feasible in the dense areas of the east? Like, I mean, it's it's a common tool out here in the west, but yeah. we don't have the population densities, and we have different landscapes. We do, um, but also going back to its its competing interest as well. So, one, just the scale. What, how much can we actually physically implement fire on on a given year? And then, two, in the in the process of reclamation. Um, there's what's called bond release where they put up money to, you know, for the reclamation process. And it has to essentially be 100% out of bond before you can put fire on it. You think about it, you're putting fire on it, you're removing all the vegetation, which is going to increase your chances of erosion. So now we have us as Department of Fish and Wildlife having to work with our sister agency of uh, the, the surface mine and the Department of Natural Resources on what that looks like in our timing of it. So we do have a lot of uh, hurdles or challenges to, to work through that, but, but we're, we're making an attempt. Um, we've, we've, we have what's called an Eastern or what they call it, the Eastern Kentucky Habitat Initiative, where we're pushing uh, to do more uh, management on those areas to try to keep what's open open at least this, at this point. Hmm. What's the percentage of private versus public land in the elk zone? <laughs> so another opportunity or challenge. So, um, I mean, when you look at us as an agency, I guess we need to define our terms first off. So elk zone, 4.1 million acres of that, what is truly public owned is very, very little. Um, we as an agency only own probably a couple thousand acres. And then the Daniel Boone has, oh, uh, which is a national forest, has um, a couple hundred thousand acres um, that, that, that they have. And so it's not a lot. Um, and we knew that going in. And so we realized that we're about to turn an elk, you know, a large ungulate on the landscape that people are going to want to go hunt. And how are you going to hunt if there's no public land? So we had to get creative right out of the gate to try to do private-public partnerships to where we could work with our landowners to establish hunting on private lands. And we've been very successful at doing that and being very creative at creating partnerships. And uh, we have three or 400,000 acres uh, enrolled in that in prime elk habitat where our hunters, our hunters go and hunt that's, that's open to the public. And it's open to the public for elk hunting, but it's also open to the public if you want to go turkey hunt or grouse hunt or small game hunt, um, mm -hmm. squirrel hunt, you name it. It's it's public access and it's treated like public opportunities for, for anybody to go enjoy. Wow. Wow. That's, that, that's one thing I think those of us who live in the West, we take for granted you know, yeah. that, that it exists. And now I'll just go out on the BLM or the Forest Service and... You get to your part of the world, Gabe, and it's like, all right, we, we don't have that luxury, so how do we get creative? How, mm -hmm. We can wish for a different reality, but here's the reality we're, we're dealing with. Yeah. And uh, 
That's it's interesting. I've got to touch on one program that's kind of all related to the issuance of an elk tag. I mean, that's the that's the draw, right? People want to hunt mm-hmm. want to hunt an elk. So uh, we have a lot of big landowners, big conglomerates, coal companies that own lots of land or control a lot of the the, the amount of land. So for every five thousand acres that you enroll into a public hunting area agreement, we will give you one fully transferable either sex elk tag to be used on that property. And you get that every year. Hmm. And so that's a pretty good carrot for them um, yeah. that, that they get a tag and it's fully transferable. So they could sell it, use it, give it away, uh, whatever, whatever have you uh, that they choose. And then the public gets that land to go out and recreate on and, and hunt on. Yeah. How many 5,000 acre parcels are there in Kentucky, though? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a big we've parcel got, anywhere. We've got over 300,000 acres in that in that program, so it's it's a lot. Wow. And, and we've seen some folks that kind of have a co-op where they, you know, I've got a couple thousand, i got a couple thousand, and they'll go in together to try to get to that 5,000 mark and then share the tag. And, and so that's uh, things that we see. Um, mm-hmm. We've done sim- we have similar programs if you want to uh, allow us to come capture some elk. So we haven't really talked about us moving and capturing elk. Then we'll get to that, I'm sure. But we have we have lots of different ways to get what we need accomplished uh, with the issuance of elk tags for public hunting. Hmm. What's the what's the primary That's, use of the private land of those bigger blocks that are signing up for access? I'm guessing it's not agriculture for for a lot of them. No. No, it pretty much is either timber or natural resources of some of some sort, whether it's natural gas or coal. Um, you know, when I started in the early 2000s, you know, coal was just booming and boomed all the way through the national recession. But then after the national recession went through in 07, 08, and that we kind of rebounded as a country, the coal industry really started tanking after that. And that industry is is pretty much gone, unfortunately, in in mm-hmm. Kentucky and really the whole eastern U.S. And they've pretty much pulled out. I mean, I can name just one or two active jobs, and they're sitting on those. They're sitting on those, hoping that uh, the market will rebound or hold on them. And they change hands fairly often uh, now. So you know, it's it's kind of a weird state uh, with them and what those industries are going to do. Uh, but it's also allowed us to, to get into some places that traditionally they wouldn't have let us because they were mining and blowing up the mountains. Hmm. So does that represent an opportunity for you where you can come in and say, hey, you, you have this property. Times are kind of tough in your industry. Here's some ways we can work with you to maybe get more utility out of the property, for lack of a better way of saying it. Absolutely. That was one of one of our goals is trying to reach out. So, I mean, we went to all of our large landowners, identified who they were and really started pushing them to say, hey, well, you know, you've got all this land. Why don't you sign up and let some people recreate on it, get an elk tag and and uh, do that. And that's kind of why it's been successful is we've been very proactive with trying to identify those landowners and then go after them to try to get them to, to work with us. And you know, it it is a challenge. We are the government, and that's a that's an industry that's 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 kind of you know a little timid of the the government. But you know, we're not the the the, the mining industry. We're we're here about the elk and the hunting and recreation. And really, once you have that conversation, get in the room, it, it really aligns real well. Just getting them on the phone, getting them in person was is the key. 
Hmm. How many elk tags do you guys give out in a year? So we're a little over 600 um, right now. Um, that's ebbed and flowed from as high as a, a little over a thousand. Um, you know, to the very beginning when we issued uh, we issued 12. So uh, you know, 600 is kind of what we have uh, settled on, if you will, over the last couple of years. Uh, that seems to work well for us and what our hunters and our expectations are. So uh, yeah, that's where we are right now. Huh. Man, I, I must be sending you the wrong $10 bill. With my I was going to say. I think that, <laughs> isn't that what it is for us non-residents, Corey? $10 yep. or something like that? And, and yeah, you guys you televise all four, on, all four seasons, can't you? Yeah, so it, it is $10. doesn't matter if you're a resident or non-resident. Um, oh, okay. You can apply for an either-sex archery uh, tag or a bull firearms tag or cow firearms tag. And then we also have a youth tag uh, that, that kiddos can apply for, and uh, they can apply for the the regular permits as well. Uh, so they have they have the ch- choice to apply for all four, but us us adults just get the three. <laughs> well, I'm, isn't your deadline April thirtieth? April thirtieth. So come up on lie and say, isn't month? your deadline yeah. June first? And everybody goes <laughs> yeah, exactly. goes in man. Well, we've already <laughs> missed the deadline, right? Yeah, yeah. for our hundreds of Zen, yeah. Like for us, that's going to work out great. But, you know, for they'll everybody forget else, it by, no. they'll forget uh, about it by next year, anyway. So yeah, we we didn't right, time this right. very good. Uh-uh. No, should have talked we, in we, June or May, right? There you go. <laughs> well, I I would say for me, Gabe. If you told me there's one elk tag on the planet that I could pick, I would pick a Kentucky elk tag. Cool. So I'm hoping someday my $10 bill, uh, uh, you guys stream it online, and I yeah. wait for my name, and it's kind of like a bad Christmas. Uh, you got a lump of coal for Christmas. <laughs> you know, and, and it's kind of funny, but it's the way we really do like the system that we have because it's cheap. And, mm-hmm. you know, 10 bucks, you spend that on a Big Mac and fries at, at McDonald's heart at the, these days. So, yeah. uh, you know, we want there to be interest. We want to celebrate in that and give people the opportunities. And, you know, for a while we used the hunt of a lifetime kind of tagline that's really not what we want it to be but but as interest has grown and as cheap as it is you know you know we had almost a hundred thousand applications last year uh, for for those tags and you know that that's good for us and when you when you look at the numbers you guys understand that uh a hundred thousand applications only issuing 600 permits there's really not a system out there that would work except the chance that we have yeah, and, and so it's it's a donation and, and a hope that maybe one day you'll get picked. Yeah, well, don't don't develop some of these elaborate point schemes that the West has come no. up with. They're nothing but a house of cards tilted in the favor of old gray-haired farts like me. And uh, <laughs> yep, uh, if if you if Kentucky goes to a point system of any sort, I'm going to take back all the good things I've said about you, Gabe. <laughs> well, that's what I always go like. Honestly, people are just bad at math, and, the, and then so then I'll roll with like, let's just use some simple numbers, right? Like, all right, so we issue 600 tags, 250 of them are bull tags, and we had 50,000 people apply. So if you do a preference point system, how many years is it going to take to move through it all? Yeah, and like so, my grandkids, my grandkids, and I don't even have my kids are nine and seven. They're never going to have a chance to hunt elk because they missed the first year. It's, so it's just yeah. 
when you put it in those terms, like, oh, yeah, I kind of see that. Like, it's, you know, it's dumb and dumber. So you're saying I have a chance, right? That's pretty much it. Uh, well, you're talking to an an accountant and an engineer here. Right, so right. I, th- I think we can understand what you mean with those numbers. Or exactly. We may not be good at much, but at least we, we, we understand we handle, that, right? Yeah, we can handle math. So, but. So when when you uh, have this much private uh, land, do you end up with a lot of conflicts caused now that you know you got this robust elk herd? Are you ending up with having to address conflicts more than you thought about what you thought? Some you didn't see coming. You know, I think it's probably less than what we thought. Um, if you were to go back and ask my predecessors, what do you think? A lot of them would say, "Man, we're making a big mistake. You're going to deal with problems." For, for a long time. Um, we we really haven't seen that. Where where we started to see some problems was before we started ramping up our hunting pressure when we were only issuing 100 tags, a couple hundred tags. And they were starting to get in people's gardens. They were kind of hang out by the, you know, by the road and, and cause those issues. And then, you know, we wanted to set the standard of we're going to hunt these elk. These are here for recreational opportunities, both consumptive and non-consumptive, but we're going to manage with hunting. And, you know, it kind of goes back to our, our original conversation. We started in, in 97 through 2002, but we had our first hunt in 2001. So we were still releasing elk and we started hunting them because we wanted to set that standard right out of the gate. Like we're going to hunt these critters. And, and <laughs> cool. so that that's good. And we started having those problems and, you know, we increased pressure and, and put some direct pressure on them by putting hunters right there with them. You know, we have a very good relationship with our hunters when they're drawn. They talk to us and we talk to them frequently. And we had that connection with the landowners like, hey, this guy's dealing with some problems. Put you in contact and we able to, to, you know, send home a happy hunter and the landowner had the problem taken care of. And so, you know, that that and then also they really respond well to pressure. Um, you know, you, you put a little bit of fear into them and they're going to move and, and that, that works well. You know, dumb ones go into the freezer and the smart ones run off (laughs) success, right? Yeah. You don't get to pass on that genetic defect if if you stand around and we're here, right? Yeah. So, uh, within that four point. <clears throat> One million acre recovery zone. Uh, I saw the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation film the other day. Mm-hmm. It looks like you guys are trying to disperse and, and move elk within that recovery zone. Are there some areas that are still unoccupied? So that that film and, and that project that we just wrapped up was really, in my mind, the last step in this process. Now, we had... Um, shoot, how many release sites? Seven release sites, seven or eight uh, release sites where we released the Western Elk on the, the landscape. And that was pretty much at the point when I came on, you know, we we checkmarked, yep, they're, they're here in Kentucky, we're happy. But they were pretty fat and sassy and lazy. You know, they had everything they needed. They had, they had food, they had water, they had shelter, very little hunting pressure, and they just weren't moving uh, out of the, you know, the release areas like we wanted. And so to us, it was, well, if they're not going to move, we're going to move them as well to try to help, <laughs> help that process. And so, you know, we jump right in and start catching them. 
and we've moved elk across the elk zone uh, to tr- uh, to establish new micro herds, if you will, in certain areas to help fully distribute elk across the the, the sixteen county zone. And you know, this last one that we get, did was really the biggest biggest move. Is it was a pretty good distance, and when you look at our zone, we initially had it as fourteen counties, and when we re reevaluated that in 04 and added two counties to the very far west that in theory would link with the Tennessee elk population that they were have down there. And and so we really didn't have elk there. It was kind of this corridor, you know, when you think multi-state elk herds in 20, 30 years and 50 years, that's that's that setting that up for success. And you know, we'd kind of moved elk everywhere else. Um, we, we'd had some discussions with, with National Forest, uh, the McCurry County, where those elk went. It's 70-some percent public land, and there weren't any elk. And so for us, it's like, man, we got to get them over there. And, but we were working through other priorities that, were, that we needed to handle first uh, as a program to get to that point. And really, we, the stars aligned again to where we were kind of wrapping up all the other projects. We had the resources. We had the, the places to get them. And the, the Daniel Boone came along. Our local governments came along. And we're, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, for all that they do, partnered with us and said, you know what, we'll help foot the bill. Because we couldn't have done it without them. Um, helped us do all of that. So, I mean, once again, just a beautiful marriage where things aligned and we were able to, to get the get the project done. Now you got you got elk everywhere. Huh? <laughs> do, do you dare tell the world how many elk you got, Gabe? No, we dare <laughs> not. Right. No. Okay. All right. We'll we'll just stick with ten thousand. Wasn't that your 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 population objective? Yeah, we're we're definitely at a at the original objective, and so that's when people ask me that question. Where I usually go was is with this is you know when we brought them in, the kind of the agreement was ten thousand elk. But what does ten thousand elk really look like? We don't don't really know, right? I mean, you kind of get this vision of what they would standing on the hillside, but until they were here and they were, you know, people got used to them and the fear of the damage and the the, the negative side of elk. We really, really needed to see what works. And, you know, we hit that level and we weren't experiencing the problems that, that we thought we might. And people were happy. And so for us, it's just kind of testing those waters. And, and you know, I, I say the, said this a lot that, you know, we were in restoration. Now we're in management. And we're trying to figure out what management of elk looks like in Kentucky. We can't compare how Colorado or Idaho or Utah manages elk and apply that here in Kentucky. It just, it's completely different. It's apples and oranges. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of, we'll do something and try it. If it works great, if not, we, you know, we might adapt and move on to something different. And so we got that. And then the expectations of our landowners and our hunters from nobody's hardly ever hunted elk in Kentucky to now, you know, you go to the sporting goods store or, you know, go hang out where people where hunters frequent, good chances somebody's elk hunted in Kentucky there. And that, now we have that history, that brotherhood and sisterhood of elk hunting. And so your expectations change. Just like you guys, when you went on your first hunt, you harvested an elk, you were stoked. Now it's like, man, I think I can do a little bit better. And so now <laughs> what they're expecting looks different. And that's, and that's great for us. Now you mentioned, wow. you know, management being different between the Western states and back there. What, uh, 
you know, we've got all sorts of predation and depredation, winter mortality. What what do you deal with in Kentucky? Because I'm guessing winter kills probably not a huge issue. Is there predation on on elk? What's what are some of those factors? So, good question. Um, most of the predation is humans, and in us and our hunting hunting efforts, you know, we've looked at um, cow calf and all the different research parameters that you can, and even adult bulls on what's killing them. It's it's the bow and arrow and and, and bullet that's killing them by by hunters. That's the the main driving force. Um, we have a little bit of disease. Uh, we're fortunate in Kentucky where we have not found chronic wasting disease. And we've been looking hard for it as a state, but not found it. So thankful that it's not here. Um, what what disease we do have, um, it's called brain worm. It's a, it's a disease that elk have that, or no, I'm sorry, that, that white-tailed deer have, um, that they're not affected by it, but, but our elk herd is negatively affected by it. And um, through time, we have seen resistance in that, that number of elk that are impacted by that uh, by that parasite has decreased so we're seeing that's that's positive um as far as um um predation when we first started bringing elk into kentucky we had very few if any black bear um our, our bear population is growing now uh, where we have a bear season now we're hunting bears and chasing bears and you know i'm sure they take a few elk calves over the year over the years, as we have, you know, largened our elk herd, broadened their geographic extent, then also seen an increase in our bear population. So, but it, but it's at a very minimal, very minimal uh, level. Right now, we have a, a big research project where we're looking at, at cow reproduction and calf mortality. So we're reevaluating the, the data that we use in our model, and that's a, a three-year project. And they touched a little bit about that on the RMEF uh, video that that was kind of a, a partnership why we are why we were catching elk in the first place was for that so uh kind of re re uh investigating a lot of those uh natal information for us to help us better manage so long story not a lot and we have very easy winters i mean we've had four or five snowfalls this year for a couple inches so it's it's pretty easy for us man what about traffic mortality vehicle collision not not many, um, you know, probably 20 to 40 a year that are hit on the road. It's fairly stable. Uh, I know when you look at that landscape, there's really one or two main thoroughfares that go through there, and the rest of them are fairly small, uh, very curvy roads, and just doesn't allow for a lot of vehicular traffic and high rates of speed, and we're, we're fortunate in that, in that aspect for, for low numbers. Very cool. Well, I've been I've been driving for thirty two years, and I've never hit an elk until three nights ago. And I actually hit two. Of them. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh no. We're coming back from Sorry. spring break and driving. It was like two o'clock in the morning, and came around the corner, and there were two of them on the left shoulder of the road, and so I immediately braked and swerved right, thinking that they would hopefully go away, and they ran straight at me, and there was nothing I could uh. do. Oh, yeah. anyone get hurt? Nope, just the elk. <laughs> uh, and I, I have wow. never That's felt, more. never felt such remorse. Like it, it's amazing. You go mm-hmm. hunting, and of course, you know, you feel, you you recognize you're taking the life when you're hunting. But 
I'm out there hunting with the purpose and, and the intent to do that. Yeah. Driving and killing an elk, I felt like guilty. I felt like I should maybe consider not buying a tag this fall because I just took an elk and, you know, it didn't take too long to get over that. But it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was a different feeling huh. for sure. Hmm. You know, I, you know I, I love to expound on that. You know, for the non-hunter, they don't really understand, but it, it puts it in perspective. Like, I care a lot about these critters. I mean, it's my life work to do this. But also, I love to, to hunt them, I love to harvest them, I love to eat them. And it's it's a very odd dynamic to try to explain to folks. You know, for this group, we understand that fully, right? But uh, for some folks, it's like, how do you do, how do, you do that? But it's, 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 a, it's definitely a love, and just a very deep, deep respect uh, for them. Yep. Yeah. Well, I hope that... Uh, you're not going to jinx me, Corey, when I say I've so far lucked out and not hit one. Uh, I, I, I almost shouldn't say that because we know it's going to happen. <laughs> but So, Gabe, you guys have been kind of the seed stock for a lot of other relocations and augmentation of some of the eastern elk herd. And I, I wonder if people realize how important your cwd exempt or whatever you'd call it non-cwd status is for the importance of having a disease-free elk herd for the purposes of augmenting other populations right so that that's you know a big part of that um you know we have been the source population for a handful of uh, re-establishments restoration or augmentation for herds and you know that's one major player is that we don't have CWD in our deer or elk herds, and then also just the proximity. If you're going to move elk and restore elk in the east, it's a lot cheaper and closer to come to Kentucky as it appears to you know, drive to another western state. And so uh, that has afforded us the opportunity to really pay it forward. Now, if it wasn't for our Western sister states and sister agencies helping us and giving us elk free of charge, we wouldn't have the resources that we do. And I mean, that's what we as an agency and and fish and wildlife agencies did for, you know, for a century is trading and moving elk. And this is just kind of that next iteration. So, you know, when states came to us and said, would you help? It was absolutely. We're glad to help. You know, we have a, a growing population. We're happy with this. And the request wasn't high as far as the number of elk over the years, even though a lot of folks say it's, you know, thousands of elk, it's not. And, you know, we've, we've helped um, augment the herd in Wisconsin and we have helped establish uh, an elk or elk population in the state of Virginia and Missouri. And my numbers are right off the top of my head. It's like 322 elk. Uh, have gone to those three states. So it's not a lot, but you look at what that's done for the residents of those states and the opportunities that's afforded it. But absolutely. I mean, that to me is a career highlight to be able to be a part of, of those restoration efforts to see those things replicated in those states that we got to enjoy here in Kentucky. So really cool projects. I'm I'm the oldest guy on this call. So I, I, when I speak in terms of age, uh, I guess it covers everybody's life, Ben. But for me, I, I think some, I think some people feel this is just me overstating and being, you know, using hyperbole to make a point. But it's not. 
there's nothing in terms of wildlife restoration, relocation, translocation in my lifetime that even comes close to what you guys did in Kentucky and what it's created. And I think about that, okay, I'm 57 years old. In the last half century plus, this is the most remarkable wildlife project undertaken and completed in the the last half century, at least, probably longer. And (laughs) in a very complex landscape. Mm. You know, this isn't like, oh, we'll go put these out in the national forest somewhere where there aren't any competing interests. We, you know, or we'll go put them out in the the sage country of central Wyoming where there's, you know, nobody lives there. No, you got a lot of people who've been on those landscapes for hundreds of years under, you know, doing whatever their activity is. And now you say, hey, thanks for letting us put these elk in here. <laughs> it's, uh, it's for me anyhow it's remarkable and it's a a compliment to your agency to all the states that helped out the nonprofit groups the citizen volunteers and if ever there's conservation in action uh go read the K- Kentucky story or go watch the videos about the Kentucky story i mean i mean that is that is it played forth in our in our lifetime and you know, like we kind of talked about too, in the aspects of, you know, started in 97, finished in 02. We started hunting in 01 in the middle of it and have been hunting ever since. You know, and then in 2012, we started catching elk and sending them to another state. So just in 10 years post restoration, we're now paying it forward and sending them off other places to, to help share the love. Uh, so, I mean, I think it goes back to the the heart of our agency and our desires and excitement for, for elk and elk in the East. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is going to be a, a question I know Corey wants to ask. <laughs> I don't want to ask and, it on the it, podcast. It, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll ask it for uh, these. Your, your elk in Kentucky, do they have the normal uh, cycle of, you know, breeding, estrus, calving? that we see out here where everything is probably going to peak and, you know, plus or minus a few days of mid-September and the calving peak, it's going to be, you know, late May, early June. Yep. So good question. Um, we are just a little bit behind the West. So, really? uh, yeah, I would say that our peak, our peak breeding is usually the first few days in October, last few days in September, um, you know, peak bugling a little before that. Um, it's just, it's incredibly hot here still at that point. I mean, in September, it can be 90 every day for a while. And when you're a 800 pound, 900 pound critter coming out the daylight <laughs> is not real, real encouraging, even if it's in the middle of the breeding season. Right. So, you know, I'm sure that's got a little bit to do with it, but we are you know, looking at our, at our, uh, data. We're, we're probably a little behind most of the West in that by a couple weeks. So you can hunt in the west and then just extend that fun on to the east. That's there you go, kind of Corey. What we do, right? So you know, I don't want to be out in your guys' neck of the woods in early September and then be you know done and then back here and, and jump right in with our hunters and, and be there. So it was it's it's great to extend the the elk rut uh, for us and what we get to be a part of. What are the the season dates for the archery season and the firearms? So we, we do hunt fairly early. Um, we have a two-week archery season that comes in the 
um, second Saturday in September. And then um, the first rifle comes in the last Saturday in September. And then we have a second rifle that comes in the first Saturday in October. I know so, where I'm going. Yeah. <clears throat> so any of those tags in, you've got a, a chance to hunt the rut with each of those seasons. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Can you hunt yep. with, mm-hmm. uh, with a bow during the firearm season, or is it strictly firearm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can use any any legal weapon to hunt an elk. Uh, so if you wanted, if you're drawn for firearms and want to take archer equipment, by all means, that's we have hunters that do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. very cool. Tori, you think that you think they respond to calls the same way? Oh you yeah, imagine with the success of the population growth and the, the tight management and the bull to cow ratios and the limited hunting opportunities, I can only imagine how they respond. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell a little story just in that. I mean, I'm, you know, growing up working here before, I guess I, I started working here before I ever took my first trip to the West to elk hunt and kind of was experienced. I mean, well, they're blowing the bugle tube 24 seven, you know, all day long here when we first started and they're, those bulls don't know what they're doing and just screaming back at you and then go West and go hunt an over the counter unit and you pull out the bugle tube. They're gone, man. It's such a, it's such a <laughs> night and day difference on, on that behavior and a little bit of humble pie. Like I thought I could blow the tube. I mean, and not, no, no, I mean, and you go out there, so uh, more respect to you and your abilities, guys, and what you're able to pull off. But we we definitely have educated our elk to where, you know, if you just squeal on that thing a little bit, they would go to bugling back at you and out like, oh, you're not going to hear nothing anymore. They've, they've wised up. Well, Corey, you got to promise me this. If you ever draw an elk tag in Kentucky, you'll let me come along and just be the camp cook or something because – you're welcome uh, yeah. to be a camp cook anytime I, I have an elk tag. <laughs> I know. I, I don't want to in oh, other places. Oh, it's only in Kentucky. I see. Only, only in Kentucky. And, and, the, and the good thing is he can be he could be camp cook and have you at a McDonald's every night in, in less than an hour, probably. <laughs> so, his, you know, for Randy, it's going to be easy. So, Corey, you're getting shorted on this one, buddy. Well, <laughs> Randy wouldn't go to McDonald's. He'd at least upgrade to a Dairy Queen for me. There you go. We got some of them. That'll work. <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll make the same offer to you, Corey. If I draw in Kentucky, if they take my $10, you can come and call out for me. And I'll still it. be the camp cook. Okay. Well, okay. that works That works even better. I, I, I just hate to deprive you of the chance to come and, you know, call in a big bull elk in Kentucky. Yeah. But, you know, so, the, the reason the reason I said it that way is now you're going to get an invitation from everybody who draws an elk tag in Kentucky this year. Corey, will you come and come home for me? You, didn't even, you had this, no yeah. idea I was setting you up like that. I can, yeah. Uh, Thanks, Randy. Uh, <laughs> so outside of yeah. the, the draw, though, what other opportunities are there to obtain an elk tag? So we also have... Uh, we issue 10 governor's tags. Um, we don't call them governor's tag. We call them commission tags, but they're issued by our board um, to uh, Kentucky um, conservation organizations where they raffle those and um, sell them here in the state. So that's that's one avenue. And then the landowner tags that we talked about where we, we give them for public access. And there's probably what, 30 to 40 of those as well. So 
above and beyond the the 600 that we issue, another 40 or so that that are out there for uh, other opportunities to try to acquire. Well, that's, that's interesting because in my home state of Montana, we give away 15% of our tags to landowners and we don't get any access for them. Yeah. It just was, uh, I, I admire that you guys are, are getting something for them and you're, you're figuring out a way of how to get, you know, you're tying it to, Hey, you, you want to uh, get a better use of your land and, and share this resource uh, will make it worth your while uh, and the public benefits because you know in a place with that much private land how else what else, else would, would you, you do right yeah right <clears throat> yeah so do you guys have any state wildlife management areas that uh, i mean i know you said you only have like a few thousand acres of mm-hmm. deeded land do you have other properties that you lease or you can otherwise we do, we do across the state, just not in our elk zone. You know, we've got—I hmm. forget how many—oh, well over a hundred thousand acres that we have that we own and manage as an agency, but just just not in the east. And it—it's a, a whole another long conversation, but it really comes back to um, the the rights as far as the mineral and the leasing and the coal and the natural gas and the industry behind it that was so much. Um, you know, pre pre our agency back in the 1800s in the coal and yeah. natural gas extraction. So there's there's a very complex ownership, and you know, if we owned the owned the land but didn't have rights to the mineral, and then the mineral company came in and just reclaimed it or or took it all off, that that really wouldn't be available for hunters. So um, it, yeah. it's kind of a complex issue for us in that part of yeah. the state. Huh. Well, that's too bad because uh, now that the Land and Water Conservation Fund is fully funded and fully appropriated to the tune of $900 million, I think we need to start nominating some Kentucky projects for that funding. Right. And, and, and you're right. And I think this is a kind of a perfect segue into some other things that, that we are is we're now trying to find ways to buy some of this land. When you look at the industry is kind of gone for right now. There's not a lot of active uh, coal mining, you know, a lot of these are just being held right now. So we're trying to, to jump in there and, and purchase where we can and work with other partners and entities to try to help us. Uh, and, and, you know, that gets back to RMEF and their their mission to, to purchase and help uh, gain access and, and other partners that we have to try to help us uh, protect some of these properties and have them into the, you know, permanent public access. Yeah. Well, rumor has it that you guys are working on one of those to the tune of 55,000 acres. Am I allowed to, I mean, am I yes, spilling I mean, beans here? Absolutely. So, you know, that's that's one that we're working on and uh, our, our legislature is looking at that as well and to, to support that. So we're, we're watching it. We're excited for that opportunity. But man, 55,000 acres that, that would be ours or, or in public access, whether that's us or forestry or whatever partner that we have, but that would be a phenomenal opportunity to, to have for, for all Kentuckians and all, all folks. Yeah. Can I, can I sick all of our Kentucky listeners on your legislature to pass <laughs> your, your, yeah. your bill? What is Absolutely. it? Senate bill, what? 217 or something like that? You're, yep. That's, you I, got it. I, 
Okay. I don't want to get you in trouble, Gabe. I know you work for the state and you guys got to be kind of walk that line. But mm-hmm. if you're from Kentucky, find out what that is and uh, request support for it. Because 55,000 acres of permanent perpetual access east of the Mississippi is unbelievable in my head because I know how hard it would be to do 55,000 acres in the vast west landscapes. Yep. And then you put that back east it's like holy cow somebody make sure this happens <laughs> yeah. yeah that that opportunity is once in a lifetime uh, really it is on something that large yeah so, so that's i think it's a testament to your agency thinking about these things and being creative and uh when you talk to agency people uh, a lot of folks are like oh, those folks in kentucky they're <laughs> they're thinking about stuff they're they're not afraid to experiment and i think the results mm-hmm. you guys have and what you can show for your work on a very complicated public private ownership mostly private uh supports uh the position of respect that your peers in the agency world have for what you guys have accomplished Corey's looking at something. Yeah, what the audience doesn't see that Gabe and I can see. I think Corey right now is looking at the draw odds and looking at his calendar <laughs> to see what what is. I, I'm I looking to see if there's a list. Computer. What I'm looking at is a list of the uh, those ten commissioner tags to see where they're available well. at. On that that is Corey, on our website. Yeah. So Corey's going to go buy more raffle that. tickets. Yep. yep. Yeah. Hey. Well, don't tell anyone where they That's, are, Corey. You and I will buy the raffle tickets. I, see, I thought that was the question you were going to ask Gabe earlier when you said, I won't make you ask it, I'll ask for you. I thought you were going to ask him how to get a tag, and I thought, we don't want to spill the beans yeah. on the podcast. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I asked if there you were know, other ways to obtain a tag. It uh, that definitely piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, I've never won a raffle in my life, but I've made a lot of donations. So uh, yeah, that's where uh, Randy, you and I are a lot alike on that aspect. Man. <laughs> I'm unlucky as all get out when it comes to those things. Uh, but someone who does that clean living like Corey does, he probably yeah. 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 Tell me I which only... raffle you're putting in for Corey. I don't want to put in for that one because a, a guy like you would pull the tag or something. I was going to say I only put in for raffles that I know I'm going to win. So. well Gabe you guys work on a 15 year elk conservation strategy Uh, what's the future of elk look like or management of elk whatever you want to talk about what and you know it's always hard to predict what's over the horizon a year or two or five years but you must have some ideas of what's coming down the pipe you know, when when we sat down to write that plan, it was, you know, like I said, it's a 15-year plan, and we published it in 2015, runs from 15 to 30. We were, you know, post, post-restoration in the middle of moving elk to a handful of other states, needing to redo some of our population metrics and research. Um, you know, I said this a lot when we were drafting this was we've moved out of restoration we're now into management. What does that management look like? And we know what it looks like now, but how do we gauge into the future and seeing where we've been in less, you know, in 15 years to where we want to go in 15 years? And that was definitely a challenge uh, to think about it. 
and you know, of, of course, access habitat; those are your, your t, you know, t- top two. And then, to me, disease and population dynamics follows right in there behind it. And you know, knowing that we have very little public land and we expect this population to grow, we have to continue to expand upon that. Um, you know, we we hear a lot about our our modeling and better understanding our, our number. Uh, and delving that deeper than just a, a statewide number and helping us better manage uh, at, a, at a local level uh, were all things that we were kind of dealing with and working on um, at the time that we wrote it. So um, I think it's kind of heavy handed in that knowing, you know, habitat would be very, very key and very big. Um, you know, for us as our elk managers, also habitat wasn't really our expertise. And myself and our and our few biologists, we were, we were mainly researchers. We have another arm of our agency that does habitat, but you know, we needed to connect them with us to where we had both of those players kind of working collectively on elk management. You know, a lot of our our staff were thinking grouse and quail and turkeys and, and management for that, and a lot of that is similar, but focusing on the east focusing on private land uh were were keys for us in 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 that drafting Uh, and and then the other low-hanging fruit in my mind was the the non-consumptive side of it is you know we we're all elk hunters and most of us are, are on this podcast but you know that's something that really had not taken off and there was a great opportunity for that and uh, with the economy in eastern Kentucky, anything would help. And, you know, that drives the value of these animals to interest and helps that population flourish if, if it, there's more than just a hunting aspect and a deeper appreciation for them. So seeing that that industry grow, and we've seen some some changes in that all kind of is another factor that we, uh, that we wanted to expand upon. Hmm. That's... That puts a lot of value on what elk represent and mm-hmm. how much they're contributing to the state. Heck, sounds like your your agency is more of an economic development agency than a wildlife agency. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's part of it, right? Like what we do brings in that. And, you know, as, yeah. as a manager, you have to talk about that. And depending on your audience, if you're talking to the local hunter, it's about hunting. But if you're talking to a, a senator or representative here in Kentucky, they need to see both sides, the hunting, but also the economic impact. And we... We survey our hunters every year and we ask them, like, what did you spend money on? Where did you spend it? And, and trying to get a feel for the amount of money that goes into eastern Kentucky. And it's, you know, the tune of a couple million bucks that, that hunters spend in those 16 counties, just elk hunting alone. And what a tremendous resource that that brings in um, mm-hmm. for them. So, you know, all great things that the program does and having elk here that they really didn't think about uh on the surface, at least when they when they were doing this. Yeah, <clears throat> Corey, I got a question for you. Uh oh, how how would you hunt these elk in a deciduous forest? Because that's what all these Kentucky tag holders want to know. Is what would Corey do? Well, the the good news is Gabe compared it to North Idaho, which is where I grew up. So I would uh, I would I don't know. I mean, it's it's easy to say sitting here, but I would imagine with them being probably as vocal as they are, it probably wouldn't be overly difficult to locate elk in in Kentucky during the rut. Um, and I would I would be as aggressive as you possibly could with calling. 
And Gabe's nodding his head, so I, I'm guessing I'm somewhere yeah. close to the mark there. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me personally, I like I like I like hunting them in the middle of the day, putting them to bed, and just getting right up on them in that timber. You know, they're going to retreat into the timber. I'm an arch, I'm an archery hunter, like you, Corey. I mean, that, that's what my my favorite thing to do is archery elk hunt, and so I'm going to let them kind of go to bed and, and let them hit the beds, and then sneak in, play the wind usually some sort of mid slope and just get in on him as tight as I can before I give away my position and then bugle in his face and get him to come running in. That's, that's kind of the the mentality. It's hard. It's very humbling because you're in a deciduous closed canopy, crunchy forest that it's hard to sneak up on them, but you get a little rain or a little bit of fog and can quiet that forest floor down and, and find them. Uh, that's a ton of fun to, you know, get them in where they're sleeping. <laughs> you're you're yep. talking my language now. Yep, yep, yep. You know, Gabe, one of these episodes gets about fifty thousand downloads in the first week, so you probably got fifty thousand new applicants. Awesome. Right. Awesome, awesome. And and, and uh, everyone's like, Sorry, Great, guys. guys. Yeah, just yeah, you, your just, you just screwed up the odds for everybody else. So <laughs> Just don't let people know where those raffles are, Corey. Man, that, that's probably our only hope. <laughs> I know. No, but I mean, and I look at it, you know, I, I apply in several states, and Kentucky is definitely the least expensive one. And for me, it's, yep. it goes to a good cause. I mean, that's, I know mm. I'll probably never draw it, mm. and my odds are better of winning the Powerball probably and just going and buying a tag in Kentucky, but it, it goes right. to the right place. And this is, I mean, what Gabe has just laid out for us, the the model of conservation and restoration and wildlife management, uh, I think it's it's worth 30 bucks from all of us to apply with the hopes of getting a tag, but really know that what we're doing is supporting that conservation and uh, making that piece of pie bigger. You know, and it's also one thing uh, when we talked about going big, for the most part, uh, license sales from elk hunters and the applications pretty much pays for the program. Yeah. And that's really great to be able to say that it supports our staff, it supports our research, and it's not a negative impact to to our agency. And that can't be said by most of the states in the East. And, and, uh, so that's, that's good to be able to offer that. We're not about making money, but you also, you know, license dollars, what put the bill here in our, in our state, we don't receive any general fund money. So, uh, those license dollars and excise taxes are what, what help keep the lights on and keep, keep the research moving. So, uh, that's, that's big for us to be able to, to have that engagement and, and opportunities uh, in the future. Well, <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to get blamed, Corey, if the if the number of applicants goes anywhere north of a hundred thousand, which you said it was last year, Gabe. <laughs> yeah, just a little under a hundred. So a little under a hundred. A little under a hundred. Okay, so if it breaks the hundred, Corey and I are going to get all the grief over that. So well, it's a perfect year for us to break the hundred thousand mark. It's our twenty fifth yeah, tw- year anniversary. So yeah. we've had elk on the landscape. So what a perfect celebration uh, for us is to have that interest and. You know, you think about it, 100,000 people, but, you know, you'd be surprised how many Kentuckians don't even know we have elk. And that's just <laughs> crazy to me. They don't even realize we got them in this state. Uh, so, uh, you know, increasing that awareness and support of that is, is one of our, our kind of tasks and what we want to increase. Well, 
One other part to this is you've mentioned RMEF quite a few times, and I'm sure there's been plenty of partners that helped out. Uh, Corey and I are big advocates for being members of RMEF. Uh, is it fair to say RMEF was one of the critical forces behind the, the effort to, to help you guys get to where you are today? I don't know what the word I would use, but beyond significant, instrumental, couldn't have done it without them. Uh, from day one until, you know, right now in this minute that we're in. I mean, uh, I can't think of a better partner in anything that we do uh, as far as elk, but just everything. That's the thing that I appreciate so much about RMEF is their their willingness to engage, their willingness to get volunteers excited and be a part of it, but also support elk and all the other aspects of wildlife. It's just I think the world of them and, and sing that tune just like you guys. Every opportunity that I get uh, when I talk help, RMEF is right there behind it and the importance of of of, of them and, and what they're able to, to do all across the country. And, yeah, they're in the West, but, man, they're active and busy in every state. And we got chapters in states that don't even have elk. And look at those banquets and look at that fundraising they do. It's uh, It really is phenomenal. Um. That's good to know. Uh, you know, I think RMEF at times gets criticism. Why are you messing around with elk in the east? Well, this is why. Because it's it's, it's such a, a highlight event. It's the right mm-hmm. thing to do. It's It creates vested interest in wild things that people maybe had just written off as, oh, there will never be elk on the landscapes I live on. And <laughs> here we are, right? We got elk in Kentucky, Tennessee. West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arkansas, Missouri, North Carolina. I might have missed somebody. Dakotas. uh, That's amazing. Yeah, the Dakotas. Yeah, the Dakotas, Minnesota. It's, uh, I I would have never dreamed that as a young person, Mm -hmm. that we'd have as many elk across the landscape, not just in terms of number, but in terms of different locations as we do today. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, Randy talks a lot about that piece of the pie and how, you know, it's so important that we bring new hunters in and we get people passionate and excited about elk and elk hunting. And it just, it increases the opportunity for hunting. Yes, that's important. But I think just that perpetuation of that opportunity that our next generations, our children and grandchildren are going to get to to see that and be a part of it, where if there weren't departments like yours gave and if there weren't organizations like the elk foundation working you know years ago 40 years ago or more with the with the foresight to see what was to come and protecting that opportunity you know we would we would lose it for sure and so it's exciting to see in my lifetime i mean i was i was alive before the rocky mountain elk foundation was organized not by a lot but a little bit and just to see the work they've done in my lifetime and the work that hunters have done and contributed to and to see the the love and the passion they have for elk and the desire to preserve that and conserve that is just that's exciting that that makes me want to do more and keep doing more you know and one aspect that we really haven't talked about in Kentucky specific that I think is a little different is that you know so many people apply and they put in their significant others their kids and and everybody with the thought of wow I'll never get drawn but then they do. And, you know, so many times as, as, as a biologist and coordinator with it, like, 
I get called and like, you know, my, my husband or my wife put me in and I've hardly ever hunted. And now what do I do? Like, I've never been elk hunting before. I never dreamed I would get drawn. <laughs> and it's like, they get to learn how to do this all over. And, and, you know, they probably hunted deer maybe when they were younger, but it's, it's, it's the excitement, it's the enthusiasm, it's the overwhelmness. You know, also just the number of of people that I've talked to that never really were interested in deer hunting and got drawn for the elk hunt. It's bizarre to me that, that came to hunting through elk hunting in Kentucky. And it, it you know, we deal with those routinely every year of hunters who called that are looking for help and looking for advice that you know, have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, you have no idea. You, you're hooked now. So, <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> well, we're grateful and, and fortunate for all the people who have had their shoulder to the wheel for more than just the 25 years that elk have been on your landscape. It, you know, there's a lot of planning and coordination and, and uh, you know, building support uh, before that ever happened. And here we are, the beneficiaries of mm-hmm. it. I think that's, that's always been remarkable to me is how in the hunting world – there is this view of the next generation and the next generation. And it, for me, it goes back to when I read about Roosevelt and all of his speeches, yeah. he'd talk about those yet in the womb of time or, you know, the hunter yet unborn. And, uh, there's going to be people 30 years from now chasing elk in Kentucky who were those hunters in the womb of time, uh, in 1997 when these elk were released. And, mm-hmm. uh, to me, it's just, it's cool. Uh, not into warm and fuzzies, but I'd say this this kind of stuff is warm and fuzzy. Yeah, it's pretty close to it. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> so, uh, well, what else you got, Corey? We got we broke Gabe away from his real job for a couple hours here. Anything? We're, I've we're, got a list of questions for once we, around? once we finish the podcast. I have a list of questions for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's good because I got it for you guys. I've been working on my draw stuff too. So let's, if we're going to do this, we're going to play both sides of it now. <laughs> I, I dusted off my Excel spreadsheet for uh, for a state really? that's closing oh. up here real soon on what I'm going to do. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, but, uh, you know, I got a pretty busy fall this year, but. You know, I could probably clean that slate a little bit if uh, if you needed some help packing your elk out or something. Okay. All right. So I, I'll, I'd make that offer to you. And with Corey, I only offer to be the camp cook because <laughs> I, I know where he goes. He's he's drugged me through some of those places before. It's like, you know, I don't need this anymore. Yeah, I'm out. He, yeah. he okay. says he offers so. to be the camp cook. I invited him to go be the camp cook a couple years ago, and he said no. No, because you told me where you were going I and know. what it would entail. And I, I know, but I'm like, nope. I told you you didn't even have if to climb the mountain. Camp- All you had to do was make it into camp. Oh, wow. And then- yeah. Yep. And I, t- I told you that if I was going to be your camp cook on that one, the camp meal was going to be like dehydrated foods. So you didn't <laughs> oh. need me for that. So I can say, I mean, I've, I've got, I've done a few Western elk hunts where I've just done that been a tag along or guide, man, that, in a weird way, it's kind of refreshing, right? It's all the fun with no pressure. And <laughs> I've enjoyed the heck out of it. Now, granted, I love shooting them. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I've enjoyed those thoroughly as well. Uh, well, Gabe, thanks so much for, for taking time. We wanted to help you guys get the word out about your 25th anniversary and all the great work that you've done. 
Corey and I wish we would have planned it better and we would have done it after your draw date of April 30th, but <laughs> you know, we're, <laughs> no one's ever accused Corey and I of being the sharpest tool in the shed. So, uh, uh, so, well, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Keep up all the great work and I'll let you and Corey compare spreadsheets when we get offline. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the, Appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you guys and, and also the offer to come up and tell the Kentucky story. Um, you know, we're, we definitely are passionate about it and care, but I, I think about all my, all my coworkers and, and previous coworkers that, that have, you know, put their blood, sweat and tears in, in the elk and, and, uh, very appreciative for them and, and able to tell their story. So, uh, for all of our listeners that, that, that tune in, thank you. Thank you for listening and, and being interested in Kentucky elk for sure. Well, Corey, this is your pitch where you always tell everybody join RMEF dot <laughs> org, or else you're not gonna you're not gonna call for them this year. So if they join, I'm gonna call for them. Is that what you just said? <laughs> well, that's kind of, that's kind of the implied promise. See, you you did say something like that one I, day. I did not. No. If they join the right. RMEF, well, I'm gonna call for them. You 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 always say you get what you paid back if you don't like it. See, I can't, I can't back out yeah. of it if you start telling people I'm going to call for them if they, if they join right. RMEF. Corey, if you join the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation at rmef.org, Corey will not call for you, but he promises you'll shoot more elk this year. Or well, maybe not this year. Maybe just you'll shoot more okay. elk. We've, we've got to have our attorneys okay. look over this stuff it's before Randy starts it. making promises. <laughs> <here>. <laughs> right, yeah. Attorneys, you and I are. Where you, you, you and I are the attorneys. Well, I know for that's this what I mean. What kind, of, <laughs> what kind of overhead do you think we got here? <laughs> got a tightwad accountant running the books. I mean, I'm not paying for no attorney. Yeah. <laughs> If, if I'm going to blow money, it's going to be on those raffle tickets right, that yeah, you're going to exactly. tell me about as quick as we get off the air here. That's so. it, exactly. No, um, it's. Uh, I think this story, Gabe's story, Kentucky Elk, uh, it's a prime example of why it's important to support organizations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And if you're not a member and you are an elk hunter, you, uh, you owe it to yourself and to elk to go to rmef.org and sign up to be a member. And that, folks, is a wrap. Thanks for being here.